this is extremely important um, that we that these pass because they you know they without it our kids uh, would be worse off and and these are very important programs. And that's Seattle City Council member Sarah Nelson, the newest member of the council, talking about two Seattle school district levies that the council is supporting right now. Yeah, just when you thought the election season was over. Oh, no, there's something else in your ballot box. There are two important levies coming your way. How are voters going to approach these, especially with some alarming numbers about student achievement coming our way? Plus, why is the council saying it's time to stop hazard pay for grocery workers when we are clearly not out of the COVID pandemic? Well, We're going to be talking about those questions and a whole lot more this week on Seattle News, Views and Brews, your Coffee Break political podcast. I'm Brian Callanan. I am a host on Seattle Channel. The views expressed here are my own. I am joined by the one and only David Croman of the Seattle Times. David, thanks for being here. I did want to point out, David, we have kind of a mild-ish stretch of January here. Is the vegetable garden looking good? Is there some green (laughs) popping up? Well, what's happening, man? Uh, well, the vegetable garden is still is still mostly dormant, but it is uh, yeah the, the the dry weather is just enough to kind of get me excited to get going. And this is this is we're about into indoor seed starting time, so that's awesome. You know, okay, and we'll start growing it. our little baby plants, but they won't go outside for another few months. Okay, all right, David, a, uh, ace reporter, master gardener. Thank you for for breaking that down, <laughs> and thank you for joining me. Always uh, always feel like when we have these nicer days in January, we're we're stealing them. Uh, thanks also to uh, City yeah. Grind Espresso, our background noise sponsor for the audio podcast. Make sure you check them out on the first floor of City Hall. Thanks to owners John and Riley. Please do support them. Other small businesses, too. Thanks to our patrons as well, hoping more of our listeners can become patrons. And if you join at the $10 level, you can join our mug club. David, did you get your mug yet? I, I shipped it. I don't I know got if I got my mug. I am oh, you got a, it. Remember. Okay, awesome, yes. man. All right. We'll, we'll be clinking mugs on there in no time the here. Before. Sweet. Okay, we'll, we'll bust those mugs out for the next one here. We'll have a little toast over the air. But uh, we also have a great member in Jason. He's one of our Mug Club members, and we're going to feature his mug on the show this week, our mug shot of the week. Jason, getting that drip coffee going. Good to the last drop or drip or whatever you're having there. Well, Jason, I do want to say thank you for sending in the photo and thanks for supporting the show. If you would like to support the show and become a patron, that would be greatly appreciated. Check out Seattle News, Views, and Brews on Patreon. Finally, a big thanks to Converge Media. They air the video version of our podcast on Wednesday nights at 7. All right, off we go with right here, right now. Well, folks, a contentious issue playing out in the city council this week as the council will be voting on ending the hazard pay requirement for grocery workers, which they passed in January of last year. Now, the council had a vote to end this temporary $4 per hour bump last month, but three days before she left office, Mayor Jenny Durkin vetoed it. So now apparently a challenge laid before Mayor Harrell with this one. David, what do you make of this move to end this hazard pay requirement? And do you see Mayor Harrell supporting the council on this issue? Yeah, I mean, I think this fits into uh, the kind of challenge that is facing i mean we're seeing this with the eviction moratorium and a lot of the kind of supports that were built up over the course of the pandemic Um, a lot of which i think were kind of structured around this idea that the pandemic would not go on for two years which it has right Um, right and so uh you know it's in the same way that you know, I, I remember last summer and then to even a certain extent this fall, people talking about almost speaking about the pandemic as it was a thing that we had gotten through. And then of yes. course, Omicron goes up and we're yeah, kind yeah. Of back in the middle of it. And so in the same way that the pandemic is kind of on again, off again, these support systems end up being kind of on again, off again. So, you know, I mean, I'm sure that the I'm sure that the council is um, getting a lot of pressure from 
local grocer- grocers. Um, uh, you know, at the same time, I know that the UFCW, the, the union has been, um, mm-hmm. you know, pushing to keep this hazard pay right. in place. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It'll, um, this question of when do you start to pull away the supports mm-hmm. that were built up over the pandemic right. is uh, something that I think is uh, a lot of elected officials are struggling with right now. And right. it's clear that the Seattle Seattle City Hall is not immune to that. No, no. Uh, good use of the word immune. I love it. Uh, I wanted to make sure I, I pointed out there, too, uh, just in Teresa Mosqueda, who uh, championed this bill and is now talking about tearing it away, or excuse me, uh, ending the uh, the $4 per hour pay bump there. She's pointing out this w- these dollars were in place to uh, supposedly help these workers get the time they need to get uh, their medical needs taken care of, things of this nature, health needs and all that. In King County right now, more than 85% of adults have been vaccinated. So I think she's trying to draw it back. And I, I think we're going to see a little bit of push uh, here and there from the council. I know Lisa Herbold has been pushing back on this. She still has concerns about this. She supported Mayor Durkin's veto last year of this uh, vote to repeal the hazard pay. I think the issue that we're talking about, and, and you were touching on this, David, this whole idea how do we move from emergency mode with the COVID crisis to make it more of a day-to-day management kind of a mode? Is that kind of what we're talking about here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think that's a that's a concise way of putting it, which is mm. these were a lot of a lot of these were intended as emergency right. supports. The 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 trouble is um, a lot of you know the union and. Ag- advocates and and Mm -hmm. even to a certain extent members of the city council have been kind of pushing for better pay for grocery workers in general so it's an Mm -hmm. industry in which it's a you know it's a challenging job i worked in grocery stores before and it doesn't pay very well and so um it's this kind of push and pull between was this a pandemic related emergency response um or is is this kind of an opening for uh grocery workers and and grocery workers unions to kind of uh, you know, pressure their employers into just paying more consistently and right. beyond uh, the COVID pandemic. And so, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, I think this is, again, an issue that is, um, we're seeing in a lot of industries, which is right. um, the, the, the emergency nature of the pandemic has spurred a lot of activism mm-hmm. for kind of more long lasting and permanent um, yeah. increases to, you know, improvements to working conditions and increases yep. pay. And so I think yeah. this grocery workers hazard pay kind of fits into that. Yeah. How are we going to come out on the other side of this in better shape? Uh, thank you for breaking that down. I should point out as well, in terms of this legislation from the council this week, they're talking about ending hazard pay, but the other requirements uh, we're talking about here, the record keeping, the prohibition against retaliation, things of that nature, enforcement as well. When it comes to all this, those would remain in place for three years. So the council wants to make sure there are still protections in place for those grocery workers. So we'll keep track of this issue and what's going on there. But I did want to move on to another issue here, if I could, with you, David. Uh, City Light, uh, there's actually a, a meeting at the committee level for this this week. Sarah Nelson, actually her first committee meeting here. Economic Development Committee is what she's overseeing. And they always stick the new members with uh, City Light, the council members there. So we'll see how she does with this. But uh, what I'm seeing here, this committee is looking at the Clean Energy Implementation Plan. This is the city's response to the Clean Energy Transformation Act that state legislators put into law in 2019. So the goal is City Light serving its customers with 100% non-emitting or renewable resources no no later than 2045. I just find this topic so interesting, David, because... As Seattle grows and moves towards this plan of, okay, new apartment buildings, you're going to be using electric to heat those things, not gas. They're really moving away from that. I think it's going to put more of a load on City Light. 
and also this challenge of using 100% renewable resources. I'm just interested to see how this plan plays out. Yeah, City Light to me is a really fascinating agency. I mean, it's mm-hmm. um, it, you know one of one of not very many you know municipal power utilities. Yes, you know, a lot of the, the West country. Coast gets mm-hmm. most of the West Coast gets their energy from private companies. Uh, mm-hmm. Most of the most of the rest of Washington State gets from Puget Sound Energy and. Um, California, PG&E, you know, notoriously. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the City Light, though, you know, I, I think a lot of actually what City Light is facing is almost the opposite problem, which is um, because buildings are becoming more and more efficient, actually, like, electrical output is is and use is not quite what it used to be. And so the mm. for a few years now, City Light has been on this kind of glide path in which a lot of their advocacy for, you know, more efficient use of electricity is actually creating a hit on their revenues which is right that's right um, you know and they have been able to make up for that to a certain extent for a while by reselling power um you know to the open market because yes seattle is nothing if not full of i mean we have plenty of electricity because we've got Mm -hmm. these massive dams um, yeah right but the that market is not what it used to be and right so so seattle people are just not using as much electricity so Mm -hmm. um you know, I, I think that as far as their load, I mean, I don't mm-hmm. think that's going to be a problem. In some ways, okay. it's going to be the opposite problem. Mm-hmm. Um, but, the you know, it, it, of any electrical utility in the country who can say, we're going to try and do 100% renewable it's, energy yeah. and may actually achieve that, it's probably Seattle City Light because yeah. uh, it's almost entirely hydro already. Yeah. I mean, it's mm-hmm. so much of our power is by nature, you know, renewable energy. Yes. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of complicated things that that come along with having large dams um mm-hmm. on rivers particularly you know city light um is in you know kind of some tense conversations with tribes up north around um, yeah. you know salmon rights and you um, bet. all that so that's complicated but as far as getting to renewable energy i you know it is probably within grasp for for seattle city light yeah, it's it's going to be so interesting to watch this. I know I read recently your colleague at the Times there, John Talton, talking about maybe nuclear needs to be more part of the uh, equation here, which was a big, big concern you know, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Uh, but now I, I wonder how that enters back into the mix. It doesn't emit the carbon or whatever else. And so I just I think there's so many moving pieces here. It's going to be fascinating to see how Sarah Nelson oversees this. And, and you're right, kind of what what City Light does next? Is, is that kind of what we're looking for here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think that, like I said, the utility has to kind of figure out its long-term plans and yeah. um, how it can, because, you know, it, it's it. there's a lot of pressure on City Light to be self-sustaining in some right. ways, because yeah. it mm-hmm. its, its budget is, you know, not, is, is separate from the general fund. And That's it's right. kind mm-hmm. of, it's supposed to be kind of self-perpetuating yeah. mm-hmm. and self-sustaining. Um but that you know comes with a lot of challenges. Um, yeah, although you know, I think when you look at, in particular, PG&E in California, and just mm-hmm. how uh, embattled that utility is, yeah. mm-hmm. a lot of lawsuits for causing forest fires, and sure. just um, I think on a whole, if I were in the utility world, I would much rather be the head of Seattle City Light right now than yeah. I would. Uh, right. Some of the companies, and you know, to a certain extent, Puget Sound Energy too. If we're talking yeah. about renewable energy, Puget yeah. Sound Energy has a lot taller of a task because they yeah. get a lot of their energy from you know co- coal and yeah. fossil fuel burning plants. Right. Um, right. So that's kind of if if Washington wants to make a dent, 
Puget Sound Energy is probably the place to do it more so than, than City Light. Yeah. Well, we're going to keep track of what's going on with that. Very interesting to see what Sarah Nelson's going to do in her first committee meeting there. But up next, we are going to talk about why were Seattle shelters only about 70% full during that major snowstorm we had back in December leading into January. That's coming up on Now Hear This. Following up on the City Council's Homelessness Committee last week, a big question facing them at that point. Why were Seattle's shelters not filled to capacity during a stretch of sub-freezing days in December and early January? Well, we actually heard from the CEO of the King County Regional Homelessness Authority, Mark Dones. They told the council committee last week, well, just getting people from the streets into shelter was a huge part of the problem. It was more than the cold, right? It was it was the snow uh, and the ice. And so it made it incredibly difficult for transit operators to function, um, which made it very difficult for folks to experiencing unsheltered homelessness to get to uh, some of the facilities that were, were open. And there's definitely a lesson learned there. Well, David, Mark Doan cited a few different issues. Transportation was one of them. Staffing was another. Simply having enough people available to do the outreach and get people inside during that cold snap. And to answer some of these concerns, Doan's asked the council for an emergency fund, some extra dollars, to give the King County Regional Homelessness Authority some more flexibility during these cold weather emergencies to react, maybe pay the staff a bonus for working in challenging conditions. But I really feel like this age-old question is, is coming back to a head here. Does the KCRHA need more money or do they need better coordination? Some thoughts about this. I think that there's, a, I mean, there's a difference in some ways between the cold weather response, which is an emergency response, yeah. and then their kind of long-term goals of building more housing and, and you know, getting people right, 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 right. off the streets. Um, mm-hmm. the, you know, the challenge with the, the cold weather housing is because it is an emergency response, it's you know you're you're setting up emergency shelter and um, in addition to all of the you know kind of well defined issues around getting people to shelter including transportation and keeping the shelters open with enough staffing you know in general uh, a, a lot of people just are not interested in emergency shelters and many people for good reason I mean it's they historically uh, have have demanded kind of you're there in very specific times you have to show up kind of early in the evening and then leave really early in the morning and you're you know right uh, maybe you're not allowed to be there with your partner or your pets sure. yeah and um, right mm-hmm. family uh, yeah mm-hmm. you know there's you know it's a cra- crowded rooms and you know people are worried about their things getting stolen and so sure. you know just getting people to use emergency shelter in general is kind yeah. of a challenging thing um, okay okay you know you know mark dones has um not made it any secret that they would prefer to raise more money. I mean, um, yeah. h- how exactly uh, yes. is mm-hmm. is not clear, but no. um, and and I don't think Dones is is going to wade into exactly the mechanism by which they would like to see more money raised. But um, yeah. Dones has made it pretty clear that they think uh, more money is necessary, and if mm-hmm. that comes in the form of more state budgeting or maybe a sure. local levy, something like that, that. That they would take it. Um, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, I, there is this debate around sort of does the system need more money or is it going to use it more efficiently? That's yeah, most, that's where I was going. Mm-hmm. Most, um, you know, I, I think kind of most serious looks at this that I have seen mm-hmm. say this would cost, you know, in the order of billions of dollars to fix. Yeah, nobody's right, spending right. that amount of money right now. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that's the case, then it is. It you know the logical conclusion is, is more money is needed. That's yeah. not to say the money that is there couldn't be spent better, that it right. probably okay. could, but, 
the enormity of the problem is such that um, the evidence does not really point to uh, fixing the problem with what city or, and local governments find in the seat cushions. Right, right. I, I hear you on that one. I do think, though, that in terms of how money is spent, and I thought this was really interesting, Mayor Harrell actually came on during this committee meeting and spoke during the public comment period, which that hasn't happened for a long time, uh, having a mayor do something like that. But I thought it was very telling because this whole idea about collaboration, which I think he's been talking about a lot after four years of the council fighting with uh, Mayor Durkin, situations like, hey, we passed this council measure on homelessness with tiny homes, and now what are you going to do with it, uh, Mayor Durkin? Crickets, you know? And so they, there was some frustration there, I think, from the council in seeing the policies they would pass and Mayor Durkin not following through on that. I just wonder if, I, I mean, we see Mayor Harold jumping in here, if we are going to see better partnership there when it comes to what the council is trying to execute and the mayor actually following up on those recommendations and delivering them. Yeah, it's possible. And I, I know that that is um, both the council and the mayor's intention to see that yeah. happening. I mean, I think more, almost more significant than that, though, is that the King County Regional Homelessness Authority is in is, theory going to be, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, hitting its stride a little bit more yeah. in a way that it never did. I mean, it really still has not. I mean, I think this right. year will be a big year for the, the authority. And yes. so, I mean, a, a lot of the kind of big picture thinking around homelessness is going to take place in that body rather than in seattle city hall you know things like tiny home villages and what to do with certain encampments around the city that's Mm -hmm. still going to be a very much city City policy yeah Mm -hmm. um and and yes i'm sure everybody in city hall would like uh, better coordination around that between the two branches of government but when it comes to big picture stuff around how are we going to move forty-five thousand people off the streets right um, the bulk of that i think is going to happen under mark dones and that whole authority exists um, on the theory that it will create more coordination. Um, right, Whether right. that happens or not is remains to be seen. Right, right. Two members of the council are serving on that regional board that oversees uh, oversees that group that Mark Dones leads. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that goes forward. It almost seems to me there's a difficulty, a transition period. I don't know what you want to call it when it comes to letting go of some of these roles that the city did play a huge piece in. But now, like you say, more than $100 million from the city went to the KCRHA. It's supposed to be their job now to be doing this type of thing. It's it's an, it's going to be an interesting balance of power, I guess, between the city and the KCRHA when it comes to, okay, how much influence is the city really going to have when it comes to what the KCRHA is going to do? Yeah, and I think that's that's the kind of make or break of this yeah. is because um, the, the truth is that Seattle is putting the most most uh, money, in, money yeah. into this thing and, you know, wants to see it spent in a way that uh, they believe is based in evidence and based yeah. on best practices. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's going to be some disagreement about that from some of the, especially from some of the suburban cities. And so whether oh, yeah. Mark Dones can uh, hold that coalition together and see that money spent effectively is kind yeah. of, um, it's kind of the six, I want to say $64,000 question, but it's significantly a lot more, more than $64,000. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Inflation, you know how it is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. No, we'll, we'll definitely be watching that relationship uh, as it moves forward here, but I wanted to move on to another issue if I could with you here, David, and make sure everyone checks their mailbox because there is a ballot in there, folks. We're talking about two school district levies up for a vote, one for capital investments, one for programs there, and your ballots are due February 8th. So fair warning to everybody. So Seattle voters love their school levies. They haven't turned one down in decades. I have actually found it difficult to find out the last time they did turn it down. And I I ask, is this another slam dunk here with a question mark at the end of it, David? Because I'm wondering if people are looking at our school system and really tracking some of the headlines we're seeing about the 
substantial loss of learning shown on these recent student assessment tests. Is that going to have an impact on the vote? Some thoughts about these school levies that we have in front of us right now. Yeah, I think there's a lot to be said about school levies and the state of schools um, Mm. right now. I think it is a slam dunk. I I don't think Seattle voters are going to turn this down, um, especially now. That said, um, school levies in and of themselves are really interesting and have been getting another look. I mean, the... Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lawsuit right now um, pending that my, my colleagues at the Seattle Times wrote yes. about, which would um, kind of takes on this question of school levies pretty directly in a way that mm-hmm. the McCleary decision before it never quite did, which yes. is the mm-hmm. decision that led to the conclusion that Washington State was constitutionally underfunding, un- unconstitutionally underfunding education yeah. in Washington uh, State. Which is but the it never... paramount duty as expressed in the state right. constitution. Keep going. Yeah. But it, it never really took on this question of school levies, which are, um, it, you know, pretty, pretty by nature uh, mm-hmm. unequal because yeah. there are places like Seattle where, mm-hmm. because they're, they're based on property values. So there are places mm-hmm. like Seattle where property values are, are going sky high. So yep. it, versus other places in the state where they are not. And so if people in Seattle vote to do a 0.1% increase to their property taxes, that's mm-hmm. like the equivalent of like a 3% property tax increase in poorer communities. And that in and of itself kind of creates inequities. And then just on top of that, you know, you've got politically, you know, I feel pretty confident saying Seattle voters are going to pass the Seattle levy, but Mm -hmm. um, you know, I live in Kitsap County. I'm seeing a lot of, um, there's a school level levy out here too. I'm seeing a lot of signs saying vote against it. And so um, politically you get these little pockets where people are just, you know, less interested in, raising taxes and yeah. you know which is is you know their prerogative and they're allowed to of do course. that but yeah. at mm-hmm. the end of the day it does leave those school districts with less funding because yeah. um, so if you are a child who grows up in a community that's not interested in passing school levies mm-hmm. your school isn't going to be as well funded and that's right. so um, there there are a lot of pretty deep seated issues with just the whole funding mechanism surrounding school levies and it'll be interesting mm-hmm. i think that is going to be a big conversation over the next few years around I, what washington state does or doesn't do with these I sure hope it is, because I feel like you and I both covered that McCleary situation for so many years. And while they, they said, hey, it's fixed uh, a couple years ago, it sure doesn't come across that way in terms of the, in terms of the local districts that I look at. Uh, I, I think it's, it's, real, it's, it's difficult. It's been difficult to watch this play out. But back on Seattle, I, I think this is really interesting here, David. I guess the hope for Seattle Public Schools is let's get these levies passed and then work on finding another superintendent. Dr. Brent Jones took the job last year, a 14-month gig, so his term ends at the end of the school year in June. Very difficult position, bit of a revolving door. Jones, the sixth person to hold the superintendent's job over the past 11 years. I just want to figure out who wants this job, uh, leading Seattle schools, especially at a time when there's been some different labor unrest over the conditions in the schools and things of that nature, how COVID was handled or whatever else. And we're not out of the pandemic yet. I, I should make sure that we make that point as well. I wonder what happens there uh, and who wants that job. Any thoughts about that, kind of the future of uh, Seattle schools and what happens? No, I mean, these are probably uh, questions that are asked to my education colleagues at the Seattle true. Times because it's true, such true. a, it, I mean, you know, it's such a complicated situation right yeah. now in schools. I agree with you. I'm not sure who would want to want to take <laughs> these jobs because it's, yeah. you know, with staffing shortages and sure. um, COVID and remote learning versus in-person learning and funding. And uh, I mean, it's just the the list of, it, it almost makes like being mayor of Seattle look like a cushy job. Right, right, <laughs> uh, right. 
there's a so yeah i don't know um I, I am not sure who is going to want this job. Um, yeah. They can hope that it's somebody who, I mean, at the, you know, at the same time, I, I do think that um, there is a certain benefit to, to taking over a job in a moment of crisis because <laughs> I see. Uh, yeah. Nowhere to you go, can only up. go out from there and <laughs> you, can, right. you can become the savior. So, right. Uh, right. Yeah, right. We'll see. All right. Well, we'll, we'll post that job on air. Sounds like if David is selected, he will not serve. So it's good to cross one person off the list there. All right. We're going to move on. Talking about like Charles Bronson, the great escape. They're digging tunnels. Talking about sound transit here, what it's doing through the middle of downtown and some concerns over that. We're going to break it down on transportation talk. David, the Times recently had a piece, uh, Mike Lindblom put this out, about tunnels that were that have been proposed by Sound Transit, including this idea for a downtown station as the system starts expanding out to Ballard and, and West Seattle. This downtown station where people would potentially travel more than 14 stories underground just to get to a train, could take a couple minutes just to get an elevator down that far. Some thoughts about this. It's a really interesting twist in the story as Sound Transit works on its plans to expand. Yeah, I will first say that um, nobody is able to get into such kind of technical detail and yet still write a, a readable article as Mike Lindblom. He's, Mike's the man. Yep. <laughs> he knows so much and it's really impressive and that he can distill it into a readable piece um, yep. is, is genuinely really impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it's it's an interesting question because um, as, as Mike pointed out, uh, a, you know, a lot of, um, especially in Europe, mm-hmm. best practices saying that, you know, cut and cover approach to building underground tunnels is mm-hmm. is the preferred one because which is basically instead of using a you know tunnel boring machine to make a mm-hmm. tube through the ground you just dig a big trench and then cover it over because it's yeah. faster and a lot cheaper and uh, you're less likely to run into really intense technical issues mm-hmm. um, the, the the problem in Seattle is uh, you know there's so much construction happening all around it and by doing that you are closing off huge swaths of the city for many months at a time and mm-hmm. um, you know one of the locations when that where that could happen is the Chinatown International District, right? Um, which has uh, just been slammed with crisis after crisis. And, yeah, um, yeah. you know, as, as Mike pointed out, especially former Mayor Jenny Durkin was really hesitant to, to make any decisions that would cause more disruptions for yeah, entire yeah. Chinatown International District. Um, yeah, talk, talk about a uh, neighborhood that's been affected by transportation issues for, for decades. I-5 I cutting right through the middle of it. So, yeah, keep going, please. Right. I mean, yeah, you, you go back to... Um, fight over the kingdom uh, sure, being the, right mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. or you know humbows not hotels and you know this yeah. is a, a, a neighborhood with a storied history of mm-hmm. um, having projects done to them and then kind of activism pushing back against that and so i think right uh, sound transit and again especially former mayor Danny durkin was really mm-hmm. aware of that and so yeah. therefore was pushing for these deeper tunnels but mm-hmm. that of course you know th- this would be nothing like digging the bertha you know the 99 tunnel but yeah uh, if there's a lesson to be taken from that there is no guarantee when it comes to these deep bore tunnel projects especially yeah. in seattle where you're digging through really kind of hairy soil mm-hmm. it would go under downtowns so you gotta i think as mike put it you know weave through skyscraper foundations and yeah um it's a much bigger and more expensive project and um so you know it's an interesting debate i mean we're talking in terms of decades here um, right right uh, 
but you know it some of because these projects are so long term and take so long to be financed mm-hmm. even though uh, some of these stations wouldn't open until you know late 2030s yeah mm-hmm. uh, they have to start making decisions about these these things now um, right right so yeah it'll it'll be fascinating I and mean, not to mention you know if you dig a 140 foot deep station then like yeah. you said you could you know and not insignificant part of uh concern around that is look at the track record of escalators on yeah, this right system which is right that the, they can't even keep like a couple story escalator working right. on capitol hill i mean what's yeah. going to happen if everyone's 14 feet stories down and the escalator yeah. goes out so um no thanks yeah you know it's it's fascinating uh, and again I'm, i i think mike does a really good job at breaking this stuff down yeah, well, we'll we'll definitely keep an eye on what uh, Mike's doing with that. David's got some pieces coming out this week too. Uh, we uh, embargoed so far, but some some great stuff you're going to learn from David here later on this week in the Times as well. It is time to wrap up, David. I wanted to point out I've been seeing online you're watching this Station Eleven show, so this futuristic yeah. dystopia thing on a- HBO Max. Basic idea: uh, swine flu takes over, kills most of us. Airports a safe haven. I don't want to give too much away, but my question is what you're learning from the show. Is it that we all are going to need some really cool costumes in the future because the costumes <laughs> in this thing are nuts in this show? Or is it that we need better protection from wolves? Because that's <laughs> yeah, so, it's right. happened like crazy in the show. Too. Anything you have learned from the show that you could pass on to our listeners? Well, my the only thing, I mean, I thought it was a great show and I really enjoyed watching it. Um, you know, the, my, the, the only thing is that it takes place in Chicago and Michigan and the Midwest mm-hmm. and I'm, screaming at the tv the whole time like i can't think of a possibly worse place to spend the apocalypse than the suburbs of chicago where it's yeah you know 100 degrees and muggy in the summer and uh-huh. you know two degrees in the winter so right right Good luck you with know that. at least at least we're in a um relatively temperate location if the swine flu comes for us right 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 great place to great place to try to survive here uh, in seattle so we'll see how that goes david thanks tv reviews what can't this guy do this is good stuff <laughs> uh thank you very much david as always for helping me with this thanks also to our patrons thanks to everybody who's listening it's seattle news views and brews where you can always find out what's brewing in local politics subscribe on itunes spotify wherever you might listen again please do support the show on patreon always always appreciate it thanks also for watching on converge media We will see you soon. Seattle News, Views, and Brews is an independent production of Calaman Media Services. Copyright 2022.